Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were all nestled, all snug in their beds, while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. These famous lines you will surely recognize from the beginning of one of America's most beloved poems, Clement Clark Moore's A Visit from St. Nicholas, also known as Twas the Night Before Christmas. I know the poem very well. I had the large golden book as a child and read it every Christmas and throughout the year. But I always snag on the part where the children nestle in their beds. Aside from Clement Clark Moore's A Visit from St. Nicholas, you've probably heard of sugar plums from another Christmas treat, Peter Iliot's Tchaikovsky's The Nutcracker, in which the sugar plum fairy rules the land of the sweets while awaiting her prince's return. But what exactly is a sugar plum? Welcome to Season's Eatings, the podcast that delves into the history and origins of your favorite Christmas foods. I'm your host, Glenn Warren, and this episode is about the ubiquitous Christmas candy, sugar plums. If you like this episode, I encourage you to subscribe and get the first listen to all the Season's Eatings podcasts. I want to thank Anthony, Julia, and Tom of Tis the Podcast. Since I've started, they've reached out and given me a warm welcome to the Christmas podcast family. Also to Dwayne from the Tinsel Tunes podcast. He also delves into history, but about the history of your favorite Christmas tunes. You can find both of these podcasts on the ChristmasPodcastNetwork.com. The dictionary defines a sugar plum as a small, round, or oval piece of sugary candy. English being the flexible language it is, the name could have come from the resemblance to a small plum, or it could have come from the actual plums preserved in sugar, a relatively new idea in the 16th century England. Prior to this time, sugar was so expensive that it was used very sparingly, much as we would use uh, spice today. In the 1540s, however, sugar started to being refined in London, which lowered the price considerably, although only very well-off families were able to use it lavishly. Preserving with sugar allowed the sweet fruits of summer to be enjoyed all year round, especially during the holiday season. But before we dive into the history of the sweets, we can't forget the sugar plum fairy from Tchaikovsky's The Nutcracker. Ironically, the sugar plum fairy is not found in the original E.T.A. Hoffman story, Nutcracker and the Mouse King, or in Alexander Dumas' The Tale of the Nutcracker, the retelling on which the ballet's first libretto was based. However, the lush descriptions of the realm of sweets in both versions could inspire many different balletic personifications of candy. Here's a snippet from Dumas. All the surrounding houses were sugar candy, with galleries upon galleries, and at the center of the square, and in the shape of an obelisk, there was a giant brioche, in the midst of which four fountains bubbled away, lemonade, orangeade, orgiat, and currant syrup. As for the basins, they were filled with whipped cream. If you wonder exactly what orangeat is, download the season's eatings episode of Stolen. The widespread success of the Nutcracker in North America during the 20th century, propelled in large part by the triumph of George Balanchine's version, afforded the Sugar Plum Fairy an unprecedented rise to power. 
especially after ballet companies coupled the Nutcracker to the holiday season. Naturally, the Sugar Plum Fairy is the first role that many young ballerinas to be aspire to. She is not only a symbol of seasonal splendor and hope, but the symbol of childhood dreams and for some dancers, the first childhood dream come true in their ballet lives. The sweet sugar plums are first mentioned in 1608 in Thomas Decker's Lanthorns and Candlelight, but not in the way that you might think. This mention was not a referencing of food, but instead the following definition according to the Oxford English Dictionary. Something very pleasing or agreeable, especially when given as a sop or a bribe. Candies were first described about half a century later in 1668. The OED has since declared the term sugar plum obsolete. There are numerous other references throughout the late 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries which clearly define sugar plums as large comfits. Most seem to have been big caraway comfits, though according to Theodore Garrett of the Encyclopedia of Practical Cookery, small strips of cinnamon were made to start off French sugar plums. In his definition of sugar plums, Garrett, the most authoritative cookery author of the 19th century, tells us, they are described under caraway comfit, the most elaborate variety of them being known as drage or French sugar plums. Candied and crystallized plums were made by confectioners, but in England they were never really called sugar plums. A little digging around the OED gives us some hints as to the elasticity of the word plum in the expression sugar plum. It names the fruit, of course, and the first sugar plums were likely named by association with the similar size and shape of nature's plums. But as sugar plum passed into the general usage in the 1600s, it came to have its own associated meanings quite apart from the fruit. If your mouth was full of sugar plums, it meant that you spoke sweet, but possibly deceitful words. If you stuffed another's mouth with sugar plums, it meant you could be a bribe that would shut someone up. In the 18th century, Plum was British slang for a hundred pounds, or more generally a big pile of money, and someone who was rich could also be called a plum. By the 19th century, plum has come to mean an especially desirable thing, a prize, a choice job, or appointment. So, now we know that plums are a good thing. Find out how the meaning of plum goes from good to sweet after this short break. There's no secret that I love Christmas. And if you're like me, you have a favorite Christmas food that means it can't be Christmas without it. For me, it's figgy pudding. There's something about having that steamed pudding that means Christmas is complete. But do you also have a favorite movie or song? How about somewhere to visit? Something that, for you, is the true meaning of Christmas? So why not let the world know? Head on over to ChristmasHalloFame.net and nominate those individuals, events, characters, and creators who've shaped and influenced the celebration of Christmas around the world. Get your nomination in, and maybe your choice will make the Christmas Hall of Fame next year. Nominations and voting are absolutely free, but you have to be a member of the Christmas Hall of Fame to vote. All nominations need to be in by November 26th to be eligible for the next year. So head on over to ChristmasHallOfFame.net and get your nominations in. So, plum just doesn't mean fruit. It can mean all manner of good things. And sugar plum? 
By the 1860s, candy makers were using steam heat and mechanized rotating pans so that less skilled workers could make larger batches more easily. Sugar plums could be made in quantity at a much lower price. So, sugar plums for all. And not just sugar plums. The falling price of sugar and the invention of labor-saving machinery meant all manner of small candies were heaping up the confectioner's counter. And by a process of lexical expansion and generalization, all of this candy, especially the small and the round or ovoid, could also be called a sugar plum. Authentic sugar plums are a confit, which was a confection traditionally composed of small seeds coated in dried fruit and sugar. The OED defines the word sugar plum thusly. A small round or oval sweetmeat made of boiled sugar and variously flavored and colored, a confit. Apparently, the word plum traditionally referred to raisins or dried currants in the Victorian era, not plums or prunes. If you listen to the premiere episode of Season's Eatings, you'll know that Christmas pudding was called plum pudding, but contained no plums at all, as did the original sugar plums. Dried currants and other more available and local small fruits were referred to as plums and used to make this confection and the traditional Christmas plum pudding. Sugar plums were more or less the size and shape of plums and would have had an aniseed or a caraway seed in the center, something of a licorice nature. In the 16th and 17th century, they often hung from thin wire and came in an assortment of colors and flavors. In Newfoundland, where I'm from originally, we celebrate Old Christmas Day, which is the last day of the 12 days of Christmas. In other parts of the world, it's also called Twelfth Night. Usually on January 6th, there's another big meal prepared and small gifts and sweets are given. If you try some 16th century preserving techniques to make Twelfth Night gifts, you'll now understand why sugared fruit was a treat to be saved for special occasions. For one thing, sugared fruit is intensely fruit-flavored and unbelievably sweet. For another, it's an extremely time-consuming but not difficult to make. Fortunately for Twelfth Night giving, the time to make sugar plums is during the summer. When plums are ripe. This is a recipe taken from Eleanor Fetiplas's recipe book from 1604. To dry apricots, peaches, pippins, or pear plums. Take your apricots or pear plums and let them boil one warm in one much clarified sugar as will cover them. So let them lie infused in an earthen pan three days, then take out your fruits and boil your syrup again. When you have thus used them three times, then put half a pound of dry sugar in your syrup, and so let it boil till it comes to a very thick syrup, wherein let your fruits boil leisurely three or four wombs. Then take them forth from the syrup, then plant them on a lettuce of rods or wire, and so put them into your stew, and every second day turn them, and when they be thoroughly dry, you may box them and keep them all the year. Before you set them to drying, you must wash them in a little warm water, when they are half dry, you must dust a little sugar upon them, throw a fine lawn. So it sounds like you put the fruits in sugar first, then boil the sugar with the fruit in a syrup, and then dry them out afterwards on a fine mesh, and then cover them with more sugar. Sir Hugh Platt, in his Delight for Ladies, published in 1609, seems to have a little bit more faith in his readers' culinary skills as his recipe is much simpler. The most kindly way to preserve plums, cherries, gooseberries, etc. 
you must first purchase some reasonable quantity of their own juice with a gentle heat upon embers in pewter dishes, dividing the juice still as it cometh in the strewing. Then boil each fruit in its own juice with a convenient proportion of the best refined sugar. Comfit are thought to be one of the world's oldest sugar candies. They most likely started life as medicine, devised by Arab apothecaries as treatments for indigestion, and were brought to Europe via Genoese and Venetian sugar traders. The Tudors ate them as a stomach settler at the end of their sizable meals, along with a glass of spiced wine. Comfit were tricky to make. The sugar coatings had to be gradually built up over time, first adding sugar syrup with a special funnel, called a purling funnel or a cot, then shimmying the candies in a hot pan. This process is called panning, and had to be repeated for hours or days on end, until up to 30 layers of sugar had been added to the mix. Confis, since they were massively labor-intensive, were pricey. Sugar plums were originally snacks for aristocrats. Early comfy also tended to be lumpy. The perfect comfy was the work of a skilled, patient, and possibly lucky confectioner. The process was so difficult that trade secrets were strictly guarded. Today, panning is performed mechanically, which is how we get uniformly round jawbreakers or smoothly oval jelly beans. Modern sugar plum recipes are now combinations of dried fruit, nut, spices, and sugar. If you search for a sugar plum recipe, you will find a handful of different varieties you can make. Alton Brown from the series Good Eats makes his with apricots and figs, and a recipe from Saveur magazine makes theirs with only apricots and dates, but no plums. It's closer to an energy bite than a multi-layered sugar-coated almond. Today, more than a century after its heyday, the word sugar plum is still considered obsolete, and the original sugar plum would be hard to find on today's candy store shelves. But that doesn't stop the idea of a sugar plum conjuring up visions of yuletide joy every Christmas season. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Seasons Eatings. If you want to learn more about your favorite Christmas foods, I would love it if you could subscribe to the podcast. You can find Seasons Eatings on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. You can also follow Seasons Eatings on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com forward slash Seasons Eatings Podcast. And when you're there, like and follow the page so you can get updates for upcoming episodes and other great events. I would love to hear from you. Why don't you drop me a line at Seasons Eatings Podcast at gmail.com. All music used on Seasons Eatings is royalty free or used under the Creative Commons license. <laughs>